The way that people currently live is they look for solutions and strategies for the most part to problems, which is very logical, right? If I have a weight problem or if I have a relationship problem or I have a finance problem, I want to find solutions to my problems. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a very archaic method of trying to find relief because what you're actually doing is reinforcing the belief that you have a problem. So what I'm appealing to is what if there was a different way to access freedom that was actually more of a process of dissolution than solution? The freedom I speak of is more like a spiritual freedom. It is awakening to the true essence of who we are beyond the facade of our sort of human persona. Hi, my name is Rongan Chatterjee. Welcome to Feel Better, Live More. Hello and welcome back to what is officially the final podcast of the current season. I think my team and I have released an episode every single week and sometimes twice a week since last September. And I realized about a week ago that I really needed and wanted to take a break. Now, I try and juggle this podcast around all of my other work responsibilities, but it really has become like a full-time job. And I have to say, it's a job that I absolutely love. Now, if you're a regular listener, you will know that the most important thing to me is spending time with my family. And that's why I am taking a summer break from the podcast. I want to switch off from the constant demands of putting out a weekly show. And frankly, so does my wife, who is the producer of the show. For me, it's really important to ring fence some time each year where I can devote my full attention to my family. And I hope that the summer break allows me to switch off, relax and reflect. Now, there's no need to worry. The podcast is not going anywhere at all. There are, of course, 120 past episodes for you to listen to or re-listen to. And right at the start of September, we will be back as per usual. But I can tell you, I've already got some fantastic guests lined up for the next season, including Wim Hof, also known as the Iceman, and Professor Tim Spector. Now, today's conversation is a really special one, and I think it's a fitting end to what has been a monumental season of conversations that matter. The message within it is really powerful and one that we can all benefit from reflecting on over the summer. My guest is Peter Crone, who's also known as the Mind Architect. This is his second appearance on the podcast, and his first one, episode 82, is one of the most listened to and shared podcasts that I have ever released. And I think that's because Peter has a knack of getting to the heart of the issues that hold so many of us back. Peter is a writer, he's a speaker, and a thought leader in human potential. He's worked with world-famous actors, athletes, and the business elite. Yet what he's got to say is just as likely to resonate with the average person on the streets who is seeking to feel more comfortable in their own skin. His mission is to help people live a life without limitations and stress. What he offers instead is a life of freedom and peace, and who wouldn't want that? Peter acknowledges that being a human being is challenging. We all face struggles and difficulties. What he offers, though, is a different way to look at life and your current problems. He believes that it is our subconscious dialogue that gives us our ideas of who we actually are. And this dialogue is rooted in childhood conditioning 
and the self-talk that we may not even be aware of. Now, we cover a lot of ground in this conversation, but it is filled with relatable examples that will help us all implement Peter's ideas into our own lives. That his approach is not to try and strategize and solve problems, but instead to dissolve them, and in doing so, get rid of the problem altogether. Simply putting a question mark at the end of your ideas about yourself can often open up space to realize it's never a truth, it's just an opinion. Now, if you heard my last conversation with Peter, you'll know how life-changing his philosophy can be. And of course, some of the things we cover today are the same, because Peter's philosophy remains the same. However, there are plenty more anecdotes in this conversation that will help you apply and reapply his philosophy into your own life. Today's conversation was recorded in Los Angeles just days before it became clear that we were at the start of a global pandemic. And at the time of recording, we certainly had no idea as to the scale of the impact that was about to ensue. This is a really powerful conversation, and I hope it helps you find more freedom in your life. Now, Before we get started, I do need to give a quick shout out to some of the sponsors of today's show who are essential for me to put out weekly episodes like this one. I'm delighted that my favorite meditation app, Calm, are one of the sponsors of today's show. Now, today's conversation is about gaining freedom in your minds, and I think meditation is one of the most helpful and impactful things we can do in this regard. Regular practice helps us to be less reactive and allows us to put some space between the stresses in our life and our response. In essence, it helps us to get better at choosing a different and less reactive response. It can help our mood, our sleep, it can reduce feelings of anxiety, and it can even enhance productivity. But many of us find meditation super tricky, as did I. Now, Calm is a meditation app that makes meditation easy. All you have to do is load up the app and play the meditation of your choice. I start most mornings with a calm meditation. Now, in my book, The Stress Solution, I wrote about the three M's that a well-structured morning routine should contain. The first M is mindfulness, and I managed to tick that off by doing a meditation on the Calm app as soon as I wake up. If you have been thinking about trying meditation, or if you've tried before but have fallen off the wagon, I would highly encourage you to check out the Calm app. Right now, listeners of my podcast get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash live more. That's calm.com forward slash live more. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. You can find out why at calm.com forward slash live more. Zendium Toothpaste are also sponsoring this week's show. We're becoming increasingly aware of the bacteria inside our guts for our immune health. But have you ever thought about the bacteria inside your mouth? Well, the oral microbiome is your mouth's most powerful defense system. It's a delicate ecosystem that needs the right balance of bacteria to stay healthy. An unbalanced microbiome can contribute to dental problems. And modern life, poor diet, too much stress, lack of sleep can all upset its balance. Zendium is the very first toothpaste brand that I've come across that aims to support the health of the oral microbiome. It uses natural enzymes and proteins that aim to increase the numbers of good bacteria, which protect your mouth naturally and reduce bad bacteria to protect it against dental problems. 
The very best way to try out Zendium is to go onto Amazon and order it. That is the online store, Amazon, where you can go and order Zendium toothpaste today. Now, on to today's conversation. So, Peter, welcome back <laughs> yeah. to the podcast. Thank you. Take two, the sequel. Take two, the sequel. Yeah, it's. Um, I've not had that many repeat guests, actually. I think only, maybe only Ritual so far. So really? Who you are? You may well be the second guest, depending on when this comes out. Yes. Who's come back? I take that as a great compliment. Thank you. Well, you should do actually, because the episode we did together, yeah. the last one, yeah. It's probably one of my most shared episodes ever. Wonderful. Now, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm very lucky. A lot of people listen to the podcast each week. Yeah. But there are some episodes mm-hmm. that really strike a chord with people, and you see it being shared for weeks and months afterwards. And your episode with me certainly is one of those. Okay, wonderful. And so I look at that, I think, well, why is it that an episode like that... Yeah makes people want to share it and say things like, I really understand my life now. I understand mm-hmm. why I make certain choices. Yeah, yeah. And I think for me, that speaks to the power of the mind. Yeah. Which is what you're all about, right? Absolutely, 100%. But I'd love to hear your thoughts, Peter. As someone who you know, is a mind architect, mm-hmm. why do you think that episode has such impact? Um, I think it's because, you know, I'm a Brit with decent teeth and people were confused. <laughs> um, all kidding aside, I, 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 I mean, I'd like to think it's just because I'm speaking to an aspect of every human being, which is that we ultimately have a lot of things in common, right? On the surface, there's suffering. There's a broad statement. Like suffering is with emotions and relationships and health and finances. People struggle. The, the human experience is um, challenging. And so I think there's a degree of resonance that people can hear that I'm speaking to that. I'm honoring that. I'm showing compassion and acceptance for that while simultaneously giving them access to what I call this this different paradigm, this world that's on the other side of our sub, uh, subconscious constraints. So the, the the way that people currently live is they look for solutions and strategies for the most part to problems, which is very logical, right? If I have a weight problem or if I have a relationship problem or I have a finance problem, I want to find solutions to my problems. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a very archaic method of trying to find relief because what you're actually doing is reinforcing the belief that you have a problem. So what I'm appealing to is what if there was a different way to access freedom that was actually more of a process of dissolution than solution, which is one of my sort of catchphrases. I say, I don't solve people's problems. I dissolve them. So, so I would assert that's why what I had to share really resonated with people because we're all human. We're all doing the best we can. And yet there is this profound, deep knowing that, things could be a lot better. And there is a different way to look at life. And I like to give people new eyes to look at whatever they can currently think their problems to be such that they find immense freedom from them. So, and who doesn't want that? So yeah, who doesn't want that? And I yeah. think that that term freedom, which is what you offer people is something we should yeah. definitely redefine a little bit at the start of this conversation. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people will be listening, thinking, I mean, you're talking about freedom, but I am free. Yeah, exactly. I'm free in my life. So how can you offer me freedom? Yeah. 
No, it's a great question. And a lot of people do feel that. And I don't want to take that away from them. The sort of freedom I'm talking about is freedom from suffering. Freedom from the limitations, constraints of our subconscious, which, again, I'm going to assert everybody has. It's just part of this dimension of planet Earth and being here as a human being. We're going to have our own perceived limitations and constraints. So the freedom I speak of is more like a spiritual freedom. It is awakening to the true essence of who we are beyond the facade of our sort of human persona. So every problem anybody has, as far as I'm concerned, belongs to the idea of themselves. So over time, you know, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, today, through the conditions of our childhood and these caregivers from our mums and dads who aren't bad people, they're doing the best they can, but we're going to be triggered into we're not enough and we did something wrong or we're bad and we're failures, all of these things that we have to experience on our journey, then what happens is what was for a child pure possibility of being alive sort of became increasingly less possibility. And that then becomes resignation and cynicism and struggle and depression. And then that leads to the the myriad of different methods we use to seek, you know, relief from depression or suffering. And so Freedom to me is freedom from that whole bucket of pain and uh, misery. <laughs> Peter, you see as clients, yeah. um, you know, some of the most successful people out there. Yeah, you know, you, you know, we talked about your story last time. We talked about how you used to train Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Yeah, um, how you, you you help people with their mind. You know, top sports stars, basketball players, golfers, business yeah. executives. Yeah. It's really interesting. You have a lot of high performers coming to see you yeah. and you help them unlock things so, you know, they can be freer. They can actually live the life that they're meant to live. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm really interested for, for people at home who don't fall into that category. Yeah. Are there things that you do with these high performers mm -hmm. that they can also do in their own life that's going to help them? A hundred percent. And look, I may well work with high-end performers in different things, you know, from sports to business to entertainment. But performance is a word that I would ascribe to any human being, a, a stay-at-home parent, mom or dad, you know, a, a kid going into his first year at secondary school or like everybody's performing at some level. So performance is sort of just a big catch-all for the fact that as a human being, you're, you're doing something. And what I like to help people is to do it add a greater sense of um, efficiency and joy and productivity. Um, so whether you're, you know, pitching for the New York Yankees with a, a lot of pressure because of, you know, not only the thousands of people watching in a stadium, but the millions of fans and the millions of dollars at stake, or you're somebody who's moving to a new town and you don't know many people and you're trying to find your way, that, that still for me falls under the umbrella of performance. So, how do I help people? Well, first of all, recognize where do you get triggered, right? That's the, that's the gift. I, I use an expression. It's one of my quotes. I say, life will present you with people and circumstances to reveal where you're not free. So if ever you get upset by something or someone, that's the thing to look for. That's almost like, well, there's the treasure that is the the pathway to discover some more freedom. Because if you're unable to sit with or be with a circumstance, then what I, I assert is life is showing you where there's, a, there's an opportunity for you to become a more powerful human being. So if your mother-in-law or your uncle or your brother or your dad or whoever it is or your boss upsets you, then 
what I would invite people to look at is what is the perceived threat, right? Because if we look at it really in terms of physics, somebody's doing something or somebody's saying something. But our brain is perceiving either of those activities as a, as a threat if we get upset. If we're not getting upset, then we're basically we're saying that's fine. They can do and have their opinion and they can take whatever choices in terms of actions they want. But wherever we get triggered to some sort of emotion, negative emotion, that's what I would ask both my clients and your listeners to go, okay, I got upset by this event. So what is it that is being triggered in me? Because all the fear is in me that is causing that reaction. And that's that's the tool, right? It's like, wow, if I'm upset by a circumstance, then I have an opportunity to find more freedom. And I think that word opportunity is yeah. very apt there, isn't it? Because many of us, and I, I absolutely did this in the past as well, uh-huh. would look at a situation where someone, we, we perceive someone to, um, someone has upset me, for yeah. example. yeah. And we often look to them saying, you know, their behavior has upset me. If they change their behavior, (laughs) I wouldn't be upset. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that I think is what most people think. Now, when you you go through this process, um, you know, and I've not had the pleasure of working with you, but I've gone through my own process. It's funny for me, one of the, one of the biggest shifts in my life over the past, at least 12 months, at least 12 months is... This idea, if anything triggers me in life, yeah. that's an opportunity yeah. to self-examine. Yeah. Instead of shunning it away and pretending yeah. it's not happening, yeah. it's about leaning into it. Yeah. I go, hey, what's this teaching me? Because yeah. you're right. If you were completely at ease with the situation, mm-hmm. it wouldn't trigger you. Right. And the example I use for people, um, and it's something I use for myself, like social media can be a toxic place. Yeah. You know, there's there's many benefits of it, but certainly some people get triggered a lot. Some people find other people offensive. Yeah. Um, you know, or in the past, you know, I have some sort of public profile, you know, yeah. people will take shots at you for particular things. And in the yeah. past it might have upset me. Whereas now I use it as a mirror. Yeah. To go, hey, why why are you being triggered by that comment? Okay. Because yeah. I can't control what someone else is doing. Right. Right. So it's like, well, what is going on inside me? Yeah. And sometimes it can be easier to figure out than at other times, right? So how do yeah. you, you know, if people want to use that, because I think that phrase you say is brilliant. Um, Thank you. If people want to use that and go, okay, look, so if I'm being triggered at yeah. some point in my life yeah, by my brother, by my wife, by my colleague, by my boss, whoever, you know, you can fill in the gap for yeah. whoever you want, basically. Yeah. Instead of looking to them... It's about looking to yourself. But how does someone do that? By, first of all, listening to something like this, whether it's us or reading a book or another workshop or another podcast where they're at least starting to become aware of the illusion, because even in your own language, you said, well, you know, that person upset me. Yeah. Now, that totally, from a human perspective, and we're all human doing the best we can. So first of all, there's compassion. But secondly, that is how it it, it seems, right? Like, no, well, why are you upset? Well, so-and-so did something or so-and-so yeah. said something. That's just everyday common conversation. But it's an illusion because nobody upset you. Somebody did something or said something, and then that triggered the upset that was already in you, right? Or if you said earlier about social media, somebody found somebody's page or post offensive. Yeah. Well, that again is revealing 
not so much what's going on over there in the post or the social media, but rather what is it about my beliefs that are in conflict with somebody else's self-expression? Now, Peter, some people are going to be pushing away at this point. They're yeah. going to be hearing this and going, mm -hmm. what on earth are they talking about? Yeah. I mean, look, that guy has been mean, so therefore I am upset. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. So, so when you can see through that and when you move beyond that yeah. and you understand, and I say that with compassion, right? No, I'm not saying course. that as like, I'm not sitting on a high horse and saying, you know, it's just, yeah. there is freedom on the other side. When you figure that stuff out, when mm -hmm. you realize that it's a mirror back to you. Yeah. For me, I think that's where growth happens. I think that's where, where freedom lies. That's where peace lies. Yes. But what about someone? I mean, you need awareness first, right? I mean, yes. what, what if someone just doesn't get it? What would you say to them? Um, well, that's what I'm saying, like through, you know, you sharing work and doing these podcasts with people. And there's obviously nowadays millions of podcasts out there where people are talking on similar subjects that we start with awareness and be gentle with ourselves. Because what, especially in my work, what I'm doing is I'm taking these deep, deep subconscious patterns, which are primal, meaning that they are deep in our DNA, they're survival mechanisms then we're bringing what was subconscious to conscious. So it's like, oh, wow, I can see that I have a pattern. I have a tendency. I have a conditioned response to a particular external stimulus. So I take myself, for example, because then I'm, I'm happy to be vulnerable about my own, my own arc of freedom. So for me, what was a trigger was anything that was of value that was potentially going to leave me, right? Now, that's a general term, but it could be a girlfriend that I was in love with or that I was very close to. The fear was, okay, now there's something external that I'm putting all of this value on. What if it leaves? Now, that could also be someone's job. It could be somebody's um, financial wealth. It could be their, their status in a company. Um, it could be their home. Like anything that we put any sort of sense of worth upon it's a human tendency to be worried about losing that. Right now, the stock markets are crashing everywhere because of the fear of the virus. And so many people are going to be in a state of fear and reaction because they're losing something. So that would be the opportunity. Okay, what is the threat? Or, that, or their perception is that they're losing something. Yes. And some people may literally be losing yeah. something, right? But loss is a, again, that's a deeper distinction, right? Form comes and goes is the way I talk about it. Um, I, I could say I've lost a lot of money on the stock market. I, I, I have relative to my portfolio, but it was always in my portfolio. So did I really have it? Do you, do you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, so again, that's an example where many years ago, I would have been in a mild state of panic or concern, which would have been normal. It's human. It's okay. But now it is like, okay, it could be mildly frustrating. It's not what I want, but it's a different relationship to the same external stimulus. So so it's to, to answer your question, we've got to bring awareness to what is the subconscious pattern that I have based on my primary caregivers of mum and dad or high school or, you know, kindergarten or wherever we learned these survival mechanisms so that now I can find responsibility because that's really what we're talking about here is either I'm a victim of life where, like you said, somebody upset me. Well, now you're a victim of your circumstance or I'm 100% responsible for my, my relationship to life because as Shakespeare said, you know, nothing is either good nor bad, only thinking makes it so. Now, if you really understand that, it's beautiful, right? So nothing actually is, quote, unquote, good or bad. It is entirely our own interpretation that is superimposed, our own narrative that we're, we are um, positioning on top of an event or a person. And so that becomes the world of I. 
And at the most deepest level, the ego or the identity or the persona, its main objective is to be right about itself. <laughs> and that's, yeah. for me, I, 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 I joke and I laugh with compassion again because people are doing the best they can. But you, when you really get it, people are arguing for their limitations. They're, they're saying, no, watch me screw this up or, oh, it was too good to be true. Like when these sort of generalized comments are thrown out there, what you're actually saying is, I'm reinforcing my own belief that things don't work out for me. Yeah. So the, it's mad, right? That we argue for inadequacy, we argue for insecurity, we argue for scarcity, uh, and that to me is, is, you know, it's very human, but it's also such a disservice to the the immense possibility that it is to be human once you break out of these very primal limitations. It can sometimes be easier to see these patterns in other people. Well, without a doubt, you know, I it, mean, it's, we can, we can, it's we blatantly can, obvious, but it's somebody else. But when it's you, it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you, you, you shared some of your own, um, mm -hmm. sort of journey there. Mm -hmm. And like the people who heard the first podcast, um, yeah, you shared how you lost your mum when you were seven years old. Correct. Yeah. Uh, you lost your father in the Zeebrugge ferry disaster when I was, was 17. It, yeah. When you were 17. That is a rough start in life. Yeah. You know, well, yeah. certainly most people would say that is a super rough start. Yeah. Okay. And then if you're saying that there is a feeling of people who I love, yeah, whether it's parents or you mentioned a girlfriend leaving, yeah, is that your subconscious programming that is affecting your conscious thoughts? Like, is that something yes. you've had to work on? A hundred percent. And is it stuff that you've had to, or you managed to work on yourself, or because it's hard to see ourselves, have you, has Mr. Peter Crone, the mind architect, needed yeah. to get help in order to do that? Both. I, and I think the greatest form of help is life. Yeah. Right? Which goes back to my comment about, like, life will present you with people and circumstances to reveal where you're not free. So where was I not free? Around the fear of loss. But where was the fear of loss? Within me. Right. So if we look back at when this one girlfriend was, you know, sort of a catalyst for my own quote unquote awakening where I started all of my work, this is now like 20 something years ago where I first had what, you know, we would as humans call the experience of love, you know, and there's puppy love and yeah. we have all these different connotations of love. But for me, there was a significant connection with somebody. And so at the time, it seems devastating, doesn't it? It's like, oh no, like my whole world is falling apart. Um, so that was the catalyst. That was what revealed. So that was the help that I got was this, this particular girl leaving. But it wasn't, it wasn't that the love was over there. It was that life set me up for success, right? Because if she hadn't left, I wouldn't have to look at what is the deep-seated fear within me. And that's what I assert we're all here. This dimension of planet Earth, it is, it is an incredible paradigm for us all to have to face the constraints that we arrived with, right? And this starts to sound a bit esoteric, but for me, I would assert we arrive with all of our bucket of fears and concerns, and then life for you, your own personal movie of life will have all the cast of characters and circumstances that you need to have to face your fears and limitations. Now, if you play that game, Actually, when you get triggered and upset, it's uh, going back to what we said earlier, it's a wonderful opportunity. But most people don't look at it that way. Yeah. They look at fear and adversity as a, as a pain in the rear, and I'm going to do everything to avoid it, which is why people don't actually go anywhere. 
right? So uh, I use a story. I think stories are so powerful and I've got so many courtesy of these beautiful clients that I've had. But there's this one gentleman, he was from a, a very traditional Catholic family. He had a, a significant other. They weren't married. So that was the first taboo, you know, within the Catholic family and tradition. Then it got even worse. They'd had a child out of wedlock. They're not married. And this was prior to Thanksgiving many years ago. And his dilemma was that he knew the relationship was coming to an end uh, with this with this woman. It was very it was it was very problematic. It was she, she was very mercurial and whatever. There's a lot of drama. So he came to me one day and he's like, "Look, I'm going to go to Thanksgiving and I don't know what to do. Uh, if I go with her and the the child, everyone will assume that everything you know business is as usual. But if I don't go with her, then everyone's going to question what's going on. So what do I do?" Now, that's a very human binary way of looking at any problem. Zero or one, zero or one, zero or one. And I said, it doesn't really matter what you do, because until you address what is the real root cause here, which is your fear in the fact that you don't feel fully loved and accepted by your family. So you don't actually have an honest, transparent, open relationship with your family. So whether you take her or you don't take her, you still have to and you will be presented with the challenge of actually being so vulnerable with your family about your concerns, about how they think about you. So that was the bit. And he said, wow, like he he got that he actually, as much as he loved his family and they truly loved him, but they didn't have a true intimate relationship because they weren't being fully honest with each other. And this is why, you know, you and I have talked about relationships and why relationships don't work is because most people aren't fully authentic or open. And so that that's one example of where his opportunity was to look at not was the solution to his fear, which would have kept him in the fear, but rather what is the fear and how can I break beyond that? It's a bit like symptom suppression or getting to the root cause. Whether yeah. he went or not, mm -hmm. fine, it may have uh, stopped a mini drama, potentially. Yes. But the mini dramas would keep coming. Like they're not going anywhere because actually yeah. the root cause of that it is it's not being addressed. Yes. Um, and that's why, again, as I said, it doesn't really matter what we do in terms of strategy or solution or the way that we try to mitigate or avoid perceived future problems. Unless you deal with the deep feeling of limitation, inadequacy, insecurity, scarcity, then it's still with you, right? Like I always say, if you notice wherever you have problems in life, you're there. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> or as I more tongue in cheek say, yeah, no, you, no problem. Right, it's yeah. there's no problems in life; there just aren't, and that's a very bold statement and a hard one for people to swallow. And I'm not for one minute saying that life is ideal or that I condone certain behaviors, but there's not a problem. There's just what's happening, and then there's the circumstance of it. And sometimes the circumstances are very unpleasant and very painful. But the problems are all in our perception or how we relate to life. So really, if we were to talk about relationships, to me, life is relationship. We, we, relationship is often understood as it's like a person and a person, right? Male-female, male-male, female-female, whatever it is, whether it's romantic or family or professional. But to me, relationship is our experience to life. We relate to life. However we relate to anything is what garners our own personal experience of life. And if people could just get that, then they have an entirely different way of looking at life. How am I relating to life versus 
what is happening out there somewhere separate to me that apparently is causing my experience of life? That's the victim model. That's the, the survival model. I have to do something in order to be loved and accepted. And now people are exhausted. You know, their adrenals are shot. They're finding all sorts of means of escape, whether it be food, sex, drugs, whatever it is, alcohol, versus going, oh, hang on a minute. What if there is absolutely nothing out there that is causing my suffering other than my own superimposed perspective of circumstance? Now, where that gets tricky is that superimposition is, for the most part, subconscious. Yeah. So that's why we've got to bring awareness to why am I feeling nervous about a public appearance or like doing a presentation at work? They think it's, oh, because everybody's going to laugh at me or whatever it is. No, that's something within you. Maybe when you were five or seven, you did a show and tell at school and people laughed. And that little bit of trauma is now still in you as a 45-year-old executive. And it's still the same way that you're relating to speaking to a group or the fact that your parents gave your older sibling a little bit more attention and bigger toys made you feel that, oh... I'm not as loved as my older brother or sister. And so now you tend to attract a spouse or a partner, a boyfriend or a girlfriend who doesn't seem to give you the kind of attention that you'd like. Well, because you're still living in that's the way that you relate to yourself. I'm not the one that gets all the attention. That goes to fill in the blank, right? So that's the patterns that we want to keep revealing. And then we want to inquire into them. We want to ask, is it true? Is it true that I'm not lovable? Or is it true that I'm not enough somehow? Is it true that I'm a failure? And if we put question marks at the end of our own concerns, it's amazing how it will it will just open up a little bit of space for people. Because my assertion is it's never a truth, it's just an opinion. I mean, I've heard you say before, I think, that conscious thinking mm-hmm. is a result of subconscious programming. Correct. Yeah. And And feeling too. That's where it gets really tricky. And feeling. So the way that we think and feel, because feelings are that much more, they've got density because now they become associated with our body. But yeah, the the subconscious pattern or the, the, it's literally like a construct. It's imagine like a particular framework and then the thoughts, feelings and actions live within that. So like this room is, I don't know, 200 square feet right? That's the size of the room. That could represent the subconscious. Now, in this room, for that reason, we're going to have certain conversations that are available to us. This is great to do a podcast. We could maybe have like a little dinner party in here. But we're not having thoughts about, oh, let's throw some fantastic, um, you know, rock band event here or the Olympics. Yeah, (laughs) That doesn't happen in this space because the space doesn't call for it. So if in my mind, the space I'm living in is I'm not enough, then the dreams and aspirations that I really have in my heart and soul, they don't become conscious thoughts because they're not available in a confined space. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's why I love what I do because I crack open these perceived, the perceived limitations. And then people literally have an entirely new experience of who they are and what the world is, and what becomes available. It is truly the world of pure possibility. Yeah. Uh, no, I love it, and, and I, 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 you know, like you, I, I, <laughs> I want everyone to experience it. Damn right, let's uh, go. <laughs> but yeah, because it, it is, it is like you know, living your best life, being yeah. able to do the things that you've dreamt of, but you often put up obstacles to actually, yeah, you know, to actually living out those dreams. And, yes. and I think that story about 
you know, let's say someone at 45 is nervous to public speak, scared of what people are going to think. And then yeah. you relate that back to a show and tell when they were five or seven, when they got laughed at. Yeah, yeah. And it is, I think there's two, there's two mm. parts of that for me. There's one is there's some imprinting that I guess often happens in childhood that serves a purpose in childhood, but no longer serves us as adults. Yeah. But also this idea that, you know, it, it's ultimately conscious or unconscious. It's a story, isn't it? It's a mm -hmm. story that we tell ourselves. Yeah. And we repeat it enough times or we feel it enough, yeah. that becomes our reality. But yeah. ultimately we have created that story. Yeah. So is the tool for people sometimes, because I think if you don't talk about this stuff, if yeah. you stay inside your own head all the time, yeah. you can create these stories and these stories become bigger and bigger inside your mind. That's why yeah. I think even simple things like journaling can be so beneficial for people because you yeah. write stuff down and suddenly you see it written on paper. You go, ah, yeah. you know what? God, I'm being a bit harsh on myself here. Or, right. or I don't know, a therapist or a counselor, when there's a third person there, yeah. suddenly that kind of emotional narrative, that story you tell yourself, it can be you can sort of convince yourself that that's the truth, but in front of someone else, yeah. suddenly you're like, actually, God, I'm, I'm being a bit harsh on myself. I don't, I don't know. Is that, is part of the problem that we don't talk about this stuff with third parties yeah. who have no emotional attachment to us? Like you, we, we're going to come onto relationships for sure. Yeah. But often we can create these narratives within our relationships. Let's say, um, with a husband, with a wife, with a boyfriend, with a girlfriend, yeah. you know, things can fester out of control very quickly yeah. because two people have got their own narratives that they're strongly holding on to. Yeah. And I think this is why couples therapy or thing can be so beneficial sometimes just to have a third person there who's not related. Yeah. You can suddenly go, actually, you know what? I'm talking a lot of nonsense, aren't I really? And it's only apparent yeah. when there's somebody else in the room. Yeah, yeah. I totally. No, I think, and I mean, as the majority of your audience is probably, you know, from, from England, I think as, as domicile Brit, you know, we were brought up in a sort of relatively reserved way, right? Like having come here to the States, there's a lot more self-expression, you yeah. know, there, there's less, less conservatism in terms of the way that people just dress and talk and believe. Is that a good that. thing? I I'll tell you why I asked that. Yeah. I would have thought as a kid growing up in the UK, yeah. you know, we had a certain perception of Americans, you yeah. know, the sort of, you know, this is awesome. This is like very, very emotive. <laughs> we're and number very, one. <laughs> yeah, right. And I think as Brits, we yeah. was thought, you know, Brit, a lot of Brits find that brash and distasteful, yes. right? Yeah. But I have changed my view on that mm -hmm. over the last, maybe the last five years in the sense that I kind of feel you know what, at least they're expressing the way they're feeling. They're not holding back. They're not keeping yeah. it in there. They're expressing it. Uh, they're, they're not afraid. This is my perception yeah. to, you know, sell themselves to talk about their qualities and, and things that we as Brits found, you know, distasteful yeah. and not the way you do things. Yeah. Actually, well, maybe we're the ones who have actually got the issue where we won't express our emotions, where we'll keep them locked inside and we won't yeah. say things that we're proud of. Do you know what I mean? You have no, that no, unique no, perspective. Sure. You grew up in the UK, you now live out here in California. Yeah. You know, what's your take on that? Is there something cultural in that? And is the American way potentially more helpful? Um, I think it's, you know, cultures are 
sort of the en masse expression of the individual, right? The collective expresses, like you look at Australia, the same, right? Tall poppy syndrome. So that gets indoctrinated into kids as we grow up. Like, well, don't show off too much because then people want to cut you down. Germany, schadenfreude, right? As the expression of like getting joy out of someone else's failure. It's So regardless of which country or territory you go to, I think it's sort of... It's human conditioning. Why? Because we're programmed to, as I said, come from scarcity and adequacy and insecurity. So there's a certain joy or comfort in the the limitations that we see in others. Why? Because it's a reflection of our own. And so I think that's the biggest obstacle that we have to overcome. And I do think to to a certain degree, the states, you know, there is a degree of it is being brash. I say it's like the cocky teenager, you know, whereas you look at Europe, it's like the wise grandfather, you know, and that's just sort of speaking to how long these civilizations have been there, right? Like Europe is quote unquote much older. So if we were to look at it collectively, it's like a wise grandpa, you know, whereas America is a young country and it's like full of testosterone. It's like we're number one, right? So I think there's a degree of like as massive generalizations. I think that's just because of the, the relative ages of different countries. But I do think I think over here in the States, one thing that I will, you know, tip my cap to is that people are much more, they're, they're, they're less reticent to talk about their feelings. They're much more um, conditioned to have a therapist is yeah. very normal, you know, uh, and I think that can also become problematic because, you know, kids who are in five and six and seven years old are now in therapy. And I'm like, well, maybe that would be better served to be a conversation with the parents, but the parents are too busy living the American dream. So, yeah, I mean, we can cut this down any way you want. Whereas what, what I think is the most important thing to take out of this is to not be embarrassed by what you feel and to find a safe place, whether it's professional, whether it's, you know, a, a loving family member, whether it's a really great friend. Uh, I think one of the attributes that I do love about myself and i'd assert it's one of my biggest pillars in my work is the ability to listen and i think most humans don't know how to listen they just react so one example i was just doing a workshop it was a few months ago now in uh, hawaii and um i was speaking to many of these things and there was 90 plus percent women who are on this retreat beautiful retreat and this one woman posed a question she said well how do i help my son because he's always belittling himself relative to his older brother. Uh, and she gave the example of like, oh, well, I'll never be as good as Johnny, is what, what he said. And because she's a loving mother, her reaction was, oh, honey, no, you're this and you're that. And she started giving him all these accolades, which to the lay mind is like, well, that's wonderful. She cares about her son. And it's a subtle distinction, but it was very important. And it changed her whole relationship with her son. I said, you're not listening to your son. You're superimposing your world on top of his. And he doesn't feel heard. Now, I don't want him to stay and hang out in the feeling of inadequacy relative to his brother. That's not what I'm condoning. But I'm saying he's not being heard, which is why he also feels somehow less than. Right. Do you understand? So he said, I don't feel as or I'll never be as good as Johnny. Now, what that's what he's saying. Now, somebody who can listen would feel into, gosh, what must that feel like for that kid? And then we can start to have compassion and hold a space for his reality, because his reality at that moment is feeling inadequate, 
needing to be seen, needing to be held, not to be pumped up like, no, you're this and you're that, right? Which which we've all done to friends, like, oh, don't no, you're amazing. And but sometimes what people want is just to be heard. I feel lousy. I don't feel very good about myself. I don't know what I'm doing with myself. Like these are legitimate everyday human experiences. And I think one of the greatest gifts we can give each other is just to let somebody feel those things. We don't necessarily want them to hang out there, but to literally let them have their reality. Because oftentimes, it's if we to think about it physically, it's almost like an emotional toxin that we're trying to release. And as soon as we say no you're amazing. We're actually suppressing the expression of something that is currently discomforting in us. So for that woman, she literally had a tear in her eye and she was like, wow, I just, I do that all the time. Now it was by no means a judgment of her because she's coming from a loving place. She adores her son. But she said, it's so true because he often says, you don't listen to me. And she never made that connection. So again, it's subtle. We don't want him to feel inadequate, but we want to honor his reality because then he will literally feel seen and heard, which gives him a sense of value because we're saying, we love you enough to actually honor your reality. Then we can get into, well, why do you feel that way? What happened? You know, was it because of Johnny's performance or something or because he got better grade? I don't know. But now we get into their world which is the gift of real relationship, is really understand someone else's reality versus forcing your own perception of them on top of theirs. Peter, that is, I think, such a powerful story because there will be many parents listening to this who I think will just take a beat there and go, wait a minute, let me just rewind (laughs) that because I do that to my own children. And what's interesting for people... um, I think is that it's from a place of love. Yes, of course. Yeah, people are trying to protect their child. Yeah. But I think a lot of people will be thinking, you know, I do that to my child. And I think it is subtle, but it's very key. It's very, very key. And it's something I think Vid and I, my wife, we have changed a lot with our kids over the past years as we've understood this more and more. It's like, hold on a minute. Don't just um, reflex-wise just say, no, no, that's not the case. So hold on. You're saying, oh, it's a two-step process. One of all, step number one yeah. is, yeah, let them have that. And make sure they feel heard. That's fundamentally what every human wants, isn't it? To feel heard and yeah. seen. Yes. And that, that is, I mean, if we get that right, actually, we change a lot in the world straight away. Um, I, like, And that's why I love relationships and why I said everything is about relating because I think you know, your wife and women are, they definitely have an upper hand on yeah. men because they do that for each other, you know, and certainly, you know, you know, sometimes women can obviously be a little bit competitive with each other, but when they're loving friends, they listen to one another and their feelings because they can relate from the fact, oh, I feel that a lot myself, you know, whatever's inspiring it. But women are much more um, adept at expressing feelings and listening to one another males because we're sort of very binary we're sort of very logical we want to fix things we don't necessarily understand that all they're doing is expressing meaning they women partners sisters mums girlfriends wives they're just sharing how they feel and what they're asking for is just get my reality because right now i feel lousy i feel unattractive i feel like you know i'm a loser or it and, and they just want to feel it's okay. And why this is paramount, as far as I'm concerned, just my opinion, 
to establish that pattern of relating with children is because what happens is with this one woman's example that I gave, what that little boy is learning is that his feelings um, don't aren't important. What's important is that we keep focusing on the positive or that yeah. you're only going to be loved when you're not feeling inadequate. So we're not actually making room for our humanity. And that that's my work is, is allowing all of our flaws, our beliefs of inadequacy and insecurity to be there, not necessarily to deny them or suppress them or drink them away, but go, it's okay to have a day where you feel like shit. It's okay. And, and when you really give yourself that permission, it opens up your bandwidth to love which is all embracing because otherwise we collapse love with no, I'll love you as long as you behave the way I want you to. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if you really get that, like what has that got to do with love? That is complete preference. That is all about but, me. That's not about you. That's conditional love. Yes. It's, that's well, conditional love in some ways, isn't it? It's like behave in the way that I like and I will love you. For that reason, I would actually say it's got nothing to do with love, which is a deeper interpretation of love. See, when people talk about unconditional love, I say that's complete paradox because it's, it, it's love or it's not. It yeah. doesn't need to be it, like love is all embracing. And if people just get that, like, because they will say, oh, I love so-and-so. But if they really were to look at themselves in the mirror I don't deny that at some level they do, but in the way that they behave, the way that they speak to that person, the way they react to that person isn't a reflection of love. It's a reflection of control, manipulation, demand, and dismissiveness. It's that's not these aren't the qualities of love. Love is I accept you 100% for who you are with all of your emotions, all your self-expressions. You still have your own preferences in that. Like if somebody does behave in a way obviously that is in any way hurtful towards you, that may be a relationship you want to reconsider, but I accept you for who you are. It's like I always use the example of I can love a heroin addict for who they are and have a lot of love and compassion for where they're at in their life. It doesn't mean that it's somebody that I want to date or invite over for Christmas to my house, right? So I still have my own personal preference within that, but there's no judgment. If people could understand the, the, the disservice that it is to make another human being wrong in any capacity... That that alone opens up an entirely new world for people of compassion, love, acceptance, and for ourselves of relief. Because I don't need other people to be a certain way for me to be okay. And that's what people are saying. You need to do this. You need to behave that way. Don't do this. You should do that. Like, it's exhausting. It is exhausting. If I think that my my joy, my happiness, my relief, and my sense of contentment is completely predicated on how other people behave... Excuse my French, but you're fucked from the get-go, right? Because you're saying that I need to control the myriad of moving parts that is yeah. my family, my company, my, my friends and my society in order for me to find any glimmer of peace. That is, that is a, a hopeless proposition. It is exhausting. It's futile. And what I'm inviting people to consider is you can allow everything and everybody to be exactly the way they are and still be completely at peace. And I'd assert that's the only form of real peace there is is to allow life to be the way it is. Really hope you are enjoying the conversation so far. Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to some of the sponsors. Athletic Greens have always been a big supporter of my show, and I really like this company. They make one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I have ever come across, and I myself take it regularly. 
This podcast is all about empowering you to become the architects of your own health. And of course, today's topic of conversation is about living a life of freedom without limitation. To do that, we really need to be looking after ourselves. And of course, nutrition plays a key role. For me, taking athletic greens each morning is a key part of my daily routine. Now, ideally, everyone would get their nutrition from real whole foods. The reality, though, is that many of us struggle to do that. That's why I like high-quality whole food supplements like Athletic Greens. And I know many of you have reached out to me since you started taking it to say you've experienced a whole range of different benefits like improved sleep, better energy, better moods, more concentration, more focus, and so much more. It contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. And I really love their travel packs, which often accompany me when I'm on the roads or on the move. So if you're looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. One of the phrases I think that has influenced my life significantly is, I think I heard you say this on a conversation, I can't quite remember exactly where it's from, but this whole idea that once you understand that if you were that other person, yeah, you would be behaving in exactly the same way. That was me with Drew on Broken Brain, how we met. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that has been a life-changing phrase because yeah. what it does is that it takes it, it it takes pressure out of the situation. It takes sting out of the situation. It's it, it it brings in love, it brings in compassion, it brings in understanding. Yes. And you can apply that to anything in life. Right, you can apply it. We mentioned social media before. You could apply yeah. it to friction at work. Yeah. Once you understand that, if you were that person, you would be behaving exactly the same way. If you were born where they were born, you had the conditioning they had as a child. You had the upbringing they had. Yeah. You had the life experiences they had. You'd be behaving exactly <clears throat> the same way. And I guess. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting for me that because people say. No, I wouldn't. You know, some people say, no, no. But if I was in that situation, I wouldn't behave like that. I would make this choice. <laughs> right, right. But what's really interesting is that since our chat went out, I had a chat with someone called John McAvoy that okay. went out on New Year's Day. And yeah. John's got one of the most incredible stories you'll ever hear. John yeah. was part of... He was a criminal, right? I think yeah. I saw, yeah, yeah. He was one of powerful. the UK's most notorious criminal families. Mm. Yeah. He had two life sentences by the age of 24, I think. Right. He was... Um, you know, I think he had his first gun when he was 16. He was right. in the high security prison in the UK with yeah. uh, the 7-7 bombers. And, yeah. you know, he was like literally, you know, is he here's what society would have regarded as scum. Let's yeah. lock him up. Yeah, right? exactly. Okay. Yeah. But when you hear his story yeah, and you hear him explain his childhood yeah. and you hear him explain how he had no male role models yeah. and the only male role models he had were criminals gang members yeah who drove you know flash cars and treated women with respect and stuff you and he's he tells his story beautifully there's such authenticity yeah, yeah. yeah. but there's a there's a beautiful end to that you know he's yeah. come out of jail he's now inspiring kids through movement and through exercise yeah. you know there's a really nice end story so we we celebrate john and we yeah. celebrate what he does but he will say 
I am nothing special at all. Every single prisoner in this country yeah. has the opportunity to do the same as I did. I got lucky, yeah. right? Yeah. But we, if we provide the right uh, environment yeah. and the right, I guess, I would say level of compassion and yeah. understanding, every prisoner's got the opportunity to change like that. Yeah. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is that phrase, why it's so powerful is that we get it with like a John McAvoy yeah. who's gone from the depths to you know coming out of prison, being a free man. Yeah. Can we apply that to our boss who is pissing us off? Mm -hmm. Can we apply that to the person who just cut us up on the road on the way to work and we're infuriated at? You know, do you know what I mean? It's like, can we can we apply that to those everyday things? Because if we can, yeah, it changes everything. That's the world of peace. And I think the ultimate person for whom we want to ask, can we apply that to is ourselves? Because self-forgiveness is probably the greatest barrier to peace right it's we this is a huge conversation for people already right to consider wow what would my relationship look like if i stopped making my husband wrong or i stopped making my wife wrong or i stopped making my parents wrong that would open up an entirely different level of intimacy and peace for myself that is huge but what if i could stop making myself wrong so in your example that you know the boss that pisses me off first of all the boss isn't pissing you off he's doing or saying something or she is doing or saying something But what if I could forgive myself for the reaction that I have of fear or whatever it is that's creating my upset? That is, that's an entirely different level of love and compassion. Your story of John reminds me of one. I I just want to share it because I was personally involved in this story and it speaks to this, which is I was on my way to a date. This is many years ago down in Long Beach, which is about 25 minutes, uh, 30 minutes from here, depending on traffic. And it was during Super Bowl. It was probably um, six, seven years ago. Anyway, I missed my exit because I'm one of the things I pride myself on is being someone who honors their word. So I don't like to be late. And if I am, I'll always communicate, right? So and in this case, I was running a little late. I had communicated, but I, you know, I wanted to honor my word, and especially as, as a respectful man to a woman, like I didn't want to leave her waiting wherever she was. So for whatever reason, I missed my exit. I, I have to go down and, and turn around, come back up on, on the freeway or the highway. And, um, or the motorway. I'm, or the motorway. <laughs> the M25. <laughs> I haven't been on that for a while. Um, so, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pushing it a little bit. I'm doing about 85. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I get nudged in the back of my car, like bumper car style. Like I'm driving above the limit. Um, Please don't judge me for that because I'm doing that within my condition. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm like, what the hell was that? Like, so he must be doing 1995 in order to ram the back of my car. As I look in the rearview mirror, I see this car sort of swerve a little bit after he's hit me and then take off. Now, I was driving a, you know, a car with a decent amount of horsepower, so I, I kept with him. I wasn't even angry. The funny thing, I was more curious, like, what the hell was that? So... He came to the next exit, and it, there was a single-lane exit, and he was trying to get past. There was a car, and I distinctly remember there was been raining a little bit. There was a pothole, and his wheel went down. as this big splash, and he couldn't get past the car. So as we come down to the surface street, he knows that I'm right on his tail at this point. And he pulls in. Fortunately, he doesn't take off. He pulls into a parking lot of some sort of restaurant, and I pull him right behind him now. I'm not advising people do this. This was just purely based on instinct because it's LA and I didn't know who was going to get out of the car and if he's 
packing heat or whatever it might be. So I made sure I got out of the car first so that he could hear my voice as he opened his door. I said, hey, everything's okay. My name's Peter, right? So sort of make some sort of connection. He gets out of the car. uh, He walks up towards me and I say, hey, are you okay? He's like, yeah. And I said, you obviously can't (laughs) hit people at 90 miles an hour and then take off. I said, as long as you're okay, let's just check the back of my car and then we'll we'll have to trade insurance. Well, no, be- sorry. Before that, I could tell that he'd been drinking. That was my assumption based on someone doing that. What I assumed happened is he maybe fell asleep at the wheel and that's why he went into the back of me. So he'd come back from Vegas. He'd been celebrating something to do with the Super Bowl. And so I said, have you been drinking? He's like, yes. I said, thank you for being honest. So I'm honoring his vulnerability. I said, I'm not going to let you get back in the car. Is there someone we can call to come and pick you up? And he said, yeah, I can call my, my wife. I'm like, okay, great. I said, whilst we wait, let's just check my car and then we can trade details. We checked my cars next to nothing on it, fortunately. And then I said, okay, this is my insurance. Where's your insurance? He pulls his wallet out and he's trying to find papers. He's a bit discombobulated. He pulls something out and a, and a ring comes out and falls on the ground. He picks it up. I said, is that your wedding band? And he said, yes. And, you know, and then I could tell just energetically, like he's starting to feel a little sad. And I said, is everything okay? He says, well, we're just going through a tough time right now. And I said, that's okay. And um, I said, but she's coming here to get, and she said, yes. And he said, you know, we might be getting divorced. And anyway, so we sit and chat for a minute. Long point of the story is that would have been somebody who many people, and again, not judgment of them either, would have been like, put that guy away. He's he's a hazard to society. He's drinking and driving at 95 miles an hour. And what I heard was somebody who was just in a lot of pain, had found some relief to just get away and find some sort of companionship with friends and drink in Vegas. He was rushing back because he had to get to work in the morning, which was a job he wasn't that happy with. It wasn't paying him a lot. And so, you know, with love and compassion, I held a space for him. He got home safe. He called me the next morning and I don't need to reiterate what he said, but it was very flattering and complimentary. And then we met for a coffee at a Whole Foods like a week later and I sat with him and helped him get through the fact that he was at the time drinking about 70 units of alcohol a week. And, um, you know, his life, as I said, was on the verge of, was with his wife, was on the verge of divorce. And we turned that around just because, call it Good Samaritan or whatever it is, or that I'm fortunate enough to have the wherewithal to be able to help people, that um, he he quit drinking, he got promoted at work, he and his wife got back together, they bought a house, you know, and for years, this is a long time ago, we stayed in touch and that was somebody who was given a glimpse of a different life than the one that was otherwise predictable, you know. And that yeah. is only because, not to make me sound like some, you know, good Samaritan out on the streets at all, but what is possible when we can have a little bit more compassion for people, not fully know what they're going through until we actually inquire and we we care enough to listen and let somebody tell their story and and accept them for it and as best as we can give them support. Now, of course, there are situations where things are very, very trying and very painful uh, for humans and what they go through. We don't need to like speak to events, but people go through very hard times. Yeah. And sometimes there are circumstances for those behaviors. One of my clients was you know, sexually abused when she was eight. And you know, these things do happen. And that's not like, oh, let's have love and compassion for, um, for the person who was doing that to her. Then that might be necessary, but in a controlled environment, right? So I'm, I'm for, for everyday folk where we have judgment and we have criticism and we have hostility towards people, 
there is an opportunity to turn that around and go, yeah. okay, wait a minute. If I could just have a little bit more patience and understanding, that was at one point somebody's baby. And that baby did not know hostility and vicious behavior. It was conditioned into them through whatever they had to go through to survive. And uh, yeah, so it's a, it's, it really is a, it's a very engaging story that, and, and it's, I mean, you mentioned it at the end. I was thinking as you were saying that, you know, at the heart of your approach is compassion. Mm -hmm. That's at the heart of it. That is, how, mm -hmm. you can actually summarize everything and say it's about compassion. Yeah. Compassion to the world around you, compassion to people you come across, but also compassion to yourself. Yeah. And it's not one of the biggest obstacles to this for people. Mm -hmm. The fast pace of 21st century living. And why I say that is because if you're always rushing around, if you're always in a chronic state of overwhelm, yeah. and, you know, I've got too many things to do. I can't do this, can't do that. So, you know, you're rushing all the time. You know, you never think you've got any time for yourself. Yeah. It's very hard then to take time to be compassionate for other people if you haven't got time to even be compassionate for yourself. And, yeah. you know, one of my big recommendations to people is that, again, it doesn't, it's, it, it's, it's, I think it's a necessary part of, self-care on a daily basis you need some alone time you need mm. some time to yourself where you can just sit with yourself you can not necessarily sit with yourself and hide on instagram yeah but sit with yourself so these feelings yeah come up to the surface you can think about them you can talk about them you can write them down something and if you don't have that i think it's very hard yeah. to move to the next stage i mean what would you say to that no, I think it's great. I mean, the, the, the comment that's coming or the, the expression that's coming to mind is slow down. And that's easier said than done. But again, I make the point that everyone's in a hurry to get to a future where one day they don't have to be in a hurry. <laughs> you know, if you yeah. just look at that, right? <laughs> it's like people are working in jobs they don't enjoy, you know, to hopefully have sufficient money one day so that they can relax and have fun. But you know, to what degree could we incorporate some of that now and actually take a breath, like quite literally yeah. just stop and breathe for a minute because it is so conditioned within us to survive. So your point about the hurry, the urgency, this competitive nature of society, it's, it's a survival paradigm. And to me, real success is where I can be at peace in the midst of chaos and that's got nothing to do with my bank account. It's got nothing to do with, you know, whoever's on my arm as a beautiful man or a beautiful woman or the title on my business card. It's can I be comfortable in my own skin regardless of what's going on around me? And that to me is a human being who's found the true definition of success because I'm blessed to work with people who have more money than time and they would traditionally be seen as the most successful because of their net worth, yet if you were to understand the inner mechanics of their feelings and their thoughts and their relationships, you would see somebody who's quite broken and who's very upset and is on all sorts of medication and doesn't know how to feel compassion for yeah. their partner and certainly doesn't feel loved by anybody. So is that really success or is that just somebody who's got a lot of cash? <laughs> so I think it's the opportunity to redefine what does it mean to be a successful human being? And this is why I talk about this work, because it's not this linear track of no. one day future scenarios of when I have, right, fill in the blank, enough money, the best body, the right partner, the bigger home, the best job, the blah, blah, blah. 
that that is this perpetual waiting game which is saying that my happiness my freedom and my peace are perennially ahead of me but if you just understand that then you have to be you have to be at some state in a mild or uh, in a mild state of dis-ease or frustration or lack of contentment because the way your brain is conditioning your relationship to life is that what i want is in the future so that speaks to my lack of contentment today and what i'm inviting people to consider is that you're always where you are you're never in your future i'm not saying don't have goals and aspirations i have many but i have an intimate relationship with life and the way it is right now and i'm fully content with the way things are whilst still being committed to things that i'm excited to create but you know having been involved with many athletes i think one of the things that hit so many people hard and it certainly did me is the kobe bryant death and like here's somebody who is literally so full of life and his legacy is beyond in terms of what he's accomplished from the, the just within his sport but then like he'd become an academy award winner because of his storytelling and yeah. his books and obviously who he was as a father and here's somebody who we could argue is at the prime of their own life and then just like my dad like he went to work one day and he never came back right because of the zebruga disaster and so likewise here for his family and all the families that were involved on that helicopter it's it seems maybe tried to say but we just don't know how long we've got so rather than hoping and wishing for this aspirational future where we think we're going to be happy what about if you could just consider the possibility of being happy today and even the the declaration of independence over here talks about the pursuit of happiness you yeah. know and i think i even said it on your podcast it's become very viral one of my quotes i say true happiness like true happiness is the absence of the search for happiness and that gives an entirely different relationship to time that i'm here right now with you in this conversation and there's nothing quote unquote wrong in my life i'm not worried about where do i have to be next or what am i going to or what are people going to think about what i'm saying okay then I wouldn't be in the moment with you. I would be yeah. in my own mind. And I feel that is something that people lack. If they could just slow down enough to go, wait a minute, is my life truly in danger? Or is that just my perception? Is it really a life-threatening situation? Or is it just the way it feels? And could I just for a minute sit quietly, take a few deep breaths, listen to the person I'm with who invariably is going to be a loved one of some form, and actually not feel the need to react or control or manipulate or get somewhere that that's that's real relief for people some of the themes that have just come up i wonder if we could apply to something specific like obesity okay like, sure and what i mean by that is um you know often we think oh, you know we're going to be happy when we've got that body you yeah. know when i or when i've lost this amount of weight yeah you know things are going to be great i'm going to be able to fit into this you know mm pair of clothes i'm gonna to have to do this yeah um and you know obesity is so widespread these days both in the uk and certainly here in america for sure yeah, worldwide yeah. um and you know we're not really making inroads into obesity yeah and i think there's many reasons for that and I've, I've been trying to create my own framework for obesity recently i'm sort of playing around with a few ideas yeah based upon my experience and what i see and so there's a couple of things i just want to touch on with you based upon your work that I think might be useful. So a lot of people mm -hmm. who are trying to lose weight, a lot of my patients have said to me, you know, when this happens, I'll be able to do A, B, and C. So this yeah. is this whole idea that I can't be happy now. Yes. I will be happy at the, in the future yeah. when I've lost the weight. 
without realizing that this unhappiness with the way things currently are mm-hmm. is going to make it much harder for them to actually get to that destination in the first place. I want to yeah. really touch on that with you. Yeah. Um, I want to touch on, with respect to weight loss, I want to touch on even the whole idea of a language. I mean, yeah. I, we, we, we discussed this last time yeah. about language and the concepts of maybe depression. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, with obesity, it's also very important, you know, if you think or you say, I am fat or I am a beast, yes. that is defining yourself by a certain label. I think I yeah. want to d- expand on that with you. Yeah. And the third stream, I think, around weight loss and obesity. And mm. the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think it's such a common problem. Yeah. It's a, uh, let, me, let me rephrase that. It's a common issue that people are seeking help with. They, yeah. A lot of people would like to lose what they consider to be their excess weight. Yeah. Okay. And I just think the the mechanisms we got for that, the the, the processes for that, are unsatisfactory. Yeah. So that third component was, and this is a question actually that when I told my audience that I was interviewing you again, a lot yeah. of people came up with questions that were really excited. Amazing. So many questions, but one of them was about emotional eating. Yes. And. Those three, they're, they're quite separate, but uh, they all come under the umbrella of mm-hmm. certainly obesity. Yeah, I guess you would widen that out even further because they're the same principles that apply to anything. But yeah. I wonder how you could dissect some of that. No, I think it's a beautiful question and it's certainly an epidemic worldwide, right? Not just here in, in the UK. So I use the expression emotional obesity as a precursor to physiological or physical obesity. Now, what does that speak to? Similar to what I was saying about the mother who wasn't listening to her son, there's something unexpressed. If something's unexpressed, then it is accumulating. So if we look at that energy in Ayurveda, which is part of my work, and for people who aren't familiar, it's sort of an Indian healing methodology, which is akin to Chinese medicine. It looks at elements, and it's in, in Ayurvedic terms, it's part of the Vedas, which is associated with yoga, just to give a context. So there's something called samprapti, which is a word that speaks to the six stages of disease. And it's a beautiful system, as far as I'm concerned, and it certainly transformed my life. The first stage of disease is accumulation, where we accumulate. Now, within the context of Ayurveda, it's really looking at the physiology. So when we accumulate too much air element or fire element or earth and water element, there's going to be an imbalance. So that's the second stage is now it becomes aggravating. So let's take one example. If somebody has too much heat, they have spicy food, alcohol, stressful situations. There's too much heat in the system. It's accumulating. The aggravation will be now they start to get sour belching, acid reflux, heartburn, and then it will start to spread as the third stage. Now, we don't need to go through the whole system, but the point is it all starts with accumulation. So now if we look at our, you know, dear human friends out there who are struggling with a weight accumulation, my assertion through my lens is what's actually happened is they've accumulated a lot of trauma, emotions that haven't been expressed, and they live within the construct subconsciously, usually of I don't feel loved. I don't feel loved, I don't feel accepted, or I don't feel wanted. There's some discard which makes that human being feel completely isolated, separate from the whole, and that's a miserable place to live, and they found comfort in food. Now, that's a generalization, but a lot of people are going to be able to resonate with that. So what that will look like is as when I was a younger child, I was made fun of. I was picked on at school, or perhaps my parents were somewhat absent because they were busy or... They were just struggling with their own things. And I never felt held as a child. And I found the comfort that I was looking for in a care provider in food instead. 
And food is probably the biggest drug, right? It's something that we obviously do every day. And so that became a vicious cycle where whenever I feel any sense of dis-ease, I was never given the tools or the environment to be held. And so I accumulated my own unexpressed hurt and sadness and fear. And I found comfort by just eating. So that both speaks to the emotional eating component, but also just the dynamic of how we want to, as human beings, avoid pain and seek pleasure. So both are going on there, right? So I'm in a state of pain. There's no one really around me in my environment or my family to to listen, to my point earlier, and let me express and feel sad and, uh, and be held where I feel comforted. So my pain has been transmuted into a pleasure that I found through substance, in this case, food. And then it becomes a vicious cycle where it now speaks to the language component, which is it might have started as a feeling deep-seated of I'm inadequate, I'm not loved, I'm not wanted, that then physiologically started to be expressed as somebody who societally is now rejected because obviously it's not good to be fat, right? You're not going to be the picked one. So now you're it's a vicious cycle where you're reinforcing the belief of inadequacy and now you use language to actually misidentify with your physical form to to your point if somebody says i am fat or i am overweight what they're saying is i am this meat suit now it becomes very difficult because you're actually saying who i am is this and so to try and lose this would be to lose yourself which is impossible it's like trying to lift yourself up by your bootstraps so that's where there's it becomes insidious, right? It becomes incredibly difficult because there's the deep subconscious feelings of inadequacy and separation that then fuel the the escape mechanisms to which I then become identified. And then because of even more self-judgment, I feel there's something wrong with me and I'm bad and I have to do something against that, which creates a lot of pressure and a lot of heaviness. Like if I, if I come up to you and say, you have to do this, you, you're going to resist right nobody so when we're doing that to ourselves oh i'm a loser i have to do this we're creating more heaviness energetically emotionally and then physically in our body so that's the that's the cascade right and so how do we undo that well it comes back to what i said earlier about a lot of love and compassion and acceptance but at least undoing my association with my physical form if i can see that who i am is an expression of life i am the only expression of life that is me my perspective And as far as I'm concerned, that warrants love and acceptance. That warrants reverence. There's no other you out there. And to start to change that relationship with ourself, and and, and they probably will need some support and help to recognize, okay, what were the breakdowns in your relationship? Where, Where was the absence of love and acceptance as you grew up? Um, that, that to me is the, that's the real loss that needs to happen. It's not the loss of weight but the loss of feelings of inadequacy, yeah. the loss of the absence of love. To, it's, it may seem like a segue, but I think it relates. I'm helping a client currently go through a divorce. And her conditioning was to be the, the nurturer and the provider. And in many regards, we could say they have two children together, but we've sort of recognized she kind of has three children by virtue of the way she relates to her husband and, and who he is. No slight on him, but she had become a care provider for him too. And that's why they didn't have a passionate relationship or an equal relationship. She'd, she'd got the mothering instincts for two children and then also a grown man. And she said, you know, I'm really struggling with divorcing this person because of those patterns. And I said, just consider you're not divorcing him you're divorcing the version of yourself that attracted him. Yeah. 
Now, if you understand that, it's so profound. And for her, it was the access to a much easier path forward because she's like, wow, like it is. It feels like a shedding. I'm letting go of a part of me that felt it was my responsibility to take care of everybody, which was a reflection of her childhood where she had to take care of her mother because her mom was sick. And she just started to play that role even with her own husband. So she was letting go of that identity of herself, which gives her an immense amount of freedom not thinking that she's responsible for this grown man's life, yeah. which is also a disservice to him. He's, a, he's capable. He just didn't need to be with her because she took care of everything, right? So if we look at that as a comparison to somebody who's, quote, unquote, dealing with obesity, it's not the weight that they have to lose. It's the image of themselves that they're looking to shed that has got these connotations of inadequacy, of not being acceptable, of not being loved, that is the, the real weight loss opportunity. Because when they let go of that, they find a new sense of love and compassion for themselves, which is the precursor to a new body. Yeah. I mean, would you encourage them to even reframe the way they say it? For example, instead of saying, I am obese or mm -hmm. I am fat, you know, I am someone... For, you know, for example, I am someone who is currently carrying excess weight. But mm -hmm. oh, that's more accurate, isn't it? Yeah. Can they start using language yes. immediately to start changing that relationship? 100%. And I would even, you know, I get poetic. I love to write. And, you know, that's how I find joy in expression. I'd say who you are is an expression of pure love and pure possibility. Looking through a lens of inadequacy, insecurity, and scarcity, which led to a behavioral adaptation where I found comfort in food. Now, if you look at that cascade and we come back to what did I say at the beginning, you are an expression of love and pure possibility. It is purely based on the view you have of yourself and life that I'm not loved by society, I'm not wanted, that who I am in my relationship myself is inadequate. That that lens, it's a lens that I look through, gives me the experience of sadness, isolation, depression, hopelessness, worthlessness. From that perspective, I am going to be in a position of pain from which I found relief in food. Now, if we lift off that lens, if we remove the, the, the lie that there is something wrong with you, that you're not loved, you're not accepted, then there is relief. And in relief, I don't need to find comfort in food. So yes, to your point, they could say who I am currently is somebody who, based on my conditioning, has accumulated excess calories over time that expresses as a bigger body. That's the physics. But the why is because of the way that I view myself as somehow less than, as somehow inadequate. And that's the thing to really look at. Is it true that who you are is somehow not enough? It might feel that way. You may have expressed yourself there your entire life that way. But I would assert it is not a truth. And in the absence of that self-deprecating view of yourself, if that is gone, then people feel such an immense weight loss emotionally. Like everybody I work with says, gosh, I feel so much lighter. Yeah. And that is an energetic slash emotional precursor to then their body reflecting that. Yeah, it's... The more I think about obesity, the more I reflect on patients over the last 20 years, the more I, I don't know, the more I think we've, again, we've reduced the narrative around it to be simply about calories. Yeah, about it's about energy. food and it's not at well, all. Yeah, yeah it, <laughs> and, and even within food and people talk about hunger, but there's, there's physical hunger and then there's emotional hunger. You know, mm -hmm. why are you eating? Like someone 
on that Insta story I put out to ask you questions, I think someone yeah. said, ask Peter why I can't stop eating foods in the evening that I know aren't helpful for me. Yes. Right? You sort of answered that because actually it's part of that story. The way I see it, the way I, I talk about it is that we're now using food for things that we never used to use it for. For, for instance, mm-hmm. food used to be there as fuel mm-hmm. for physical hunger. When we were really hungry, we needed fuel, we, yeah. we'd eat. Yeah. Now we eat when we're sad, when we're lonely, when mm-hmm. we're depressed, yes. um, when we're stressed. Mm-hmm. You know, we eat for all kinds of other reasons now. Yes. And simply telling people what to eat, mm-hmm. yes, it works for some. It, it it does appear to work for some, yeah. certainly in the short term. Yes. But long term, yeah. these things never tend to last because what to eat isn't the root cause. It's why people are eating it in the first place. Yeah. Do, do, you know, and it's... 100%. It's, and- I, I really... I do. I, I don't talk about obesity that much on the podcast. It hasn't come up for a while. But I think it's yeah. super important because yeah. it is not just about read another book to tell me what to eat. No, 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 no. For some people, sure, I have seen ultimate. And what would you say for some people who do change what they eat and they do read them and go, oh, right, it's this. Yeah. Would you say there's no emotional component there? No, everybody's got an emotional component. Maybe they're a little bit more strong-willed or committed or perhaps their degree of obesity isn't, quote-unquote, as drastic, you know? And maybe they're just somebody who's very you know, left-brained and they just like, oh, okay, this is, I need instructions and I'll just follow them. I think if we really break it down, what is food, right? It is a form of nourishment. And the expression I use again, I say, for the most part, Westerners are overfed and undernourished. Now, that is not just about food. That is going back again to my point about relationships and how we do or don't experience love. So love is another form of nourishment, physical touch, being held by someone, being told that, you know, it's okay, even if somebody's feeling sad. That is a beautiful form of nourishment. And in the absence of those forms of nourishment, people are going to find, just based on their brain chemistry's impulses, some form of pleasure or nourishment. So invariably, the, the people that are struggling with physical reflections of excess or the first stage of disease accumulation, they're just missing those other aspects of nourishment. And it's easy for me to sit here and say these things, and I hope people understand I'm coming from love and compassion, which is, yes, you may be listening to this and you may be in this situation, and your question, your brain is saying is, but I don't have any good friends. My parents aren't there, or they estranged me when I was very young. Or, and, I, and all I can say is, you know, I hope you can find love and compassion for yourself. Start there, because that would be a precursor to other people showing up energetically, you know. How, how, are, how might they do that, Peter? Like how, someone hearing that, go, okay, fine. How can they start doing that? Is it with daily journaling? Is it with affirmations each day saying, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm full of love, hope and compassion. You know, I yeah. am a worthy human being in front of the mirror. Is it, um, you know, I've seen Marissa Pierce on her podcast and you talk about, you know, with some of her clients, she has, I am enough she gets them to lipstick it on their mirrors, mirrors all around yeah. the house. Everywhere they go, they see I am enough and they say I am enough. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, is there, is there something practical for them that they can start showing compassion to themselves? I mean, those are great tools. And again, um, you know, I'm not much of a strategist because I think awareness is the most important thing. Then it's practice. So to answer your question directly, yes, there are going to be things they can do. But more than anything, 
I want people to understand they are a unique expression of life. Like if that person is a parent or was a parent, I often say if you had a baby that was yours, and even if, again, you don't, but you can imagine, I don't have kids, but I can certainly imagine if I had my own child, you're obviously a dad, you understand. What would your energy be towards that child? And categorically across the spectrum, people are like, gosh, I'd just do anything for them. Now at least that person has a semblance of what does love look like? Because oftentimes we don't know what self-love looks like because we use it or it gets expressed in our relationship to somebody else that we care about. So sometimes what people need is just a hypothetical or a real-life example of where do I express love? And now we can tap into that because I know how I would feel towards my own child, towards a baby. It doesn't even have to be, it could be a niece, it could be a yeah. nephew, it could be your friends just had a new baby. And if I, I know, gosh, there's a, there's a preciousness there in that child, that is equally a reflection of who I once was as a baby and energetically and emotionally still am. So that's the, it might not seem very practical, but there is a real life example where you can look at the beauty of a newborn baby and go, wait a minute, what does that elicit in me? Because that expression internally of that emotion is the precursor to an action that is more self-loving. Now, for that person, self-love might look like, it might look like I'm not going to have that second packet of biscuits or something, right? That might be the first expression of self-love is that if if I have two traditionally in a day, two, two packets, I'm going to have one and a half today. Now, to the layperson on the street who isn't struggling with obesity, they might still judge that as yeah. terrible. But no, that was a glimpse. You moved the needle in the direction of self-love. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think more people don't, you know, need to understand that they don't, which is process, time, patience. Yeah. You know, and, and that those qualities of patience are themselves love, right? With somebody you love, with you and your children. Maybe at times you're frustrated and you're in a hurry for some, but for the most part, you understand it's a child and they need time to learn to ride a bike. They need learn, they need time to learn how to do the, the mathematical equation. And we've lost that gentleness. We've lost that humanity of patience with ourselves. And I often like to do timelines. You know, if, if, if I could see you in a year, you've got a year to work on this. And let's say somebody needs to lose. Five pounds, you know, um, five pounds, five stone, right? Yeah. Like in, so what was that? 60 pounds or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, so it's a chunk of weight. Or even if it's more. First of all, you're not going to do that overnight. What if you could look at it through a healthy lens of, okay, literally I could lose one, one and a half pounds a week, maybe two pounds a week, and that would be considered a healthy progression. Then we would reverse engineer that. So if I'm going to lose, let's say, two pounds a week, and I've got 60 pounds to lose, I've got 30 weeks, so it's about 10 months. Now, that changes for me, the conversation yeah. immediately. Wow, it gives me breathing room that I'm not supposed to do this overnight. I've got 10 months to do that. So immediately, I'm giving myself some compassion. I'm giving myself some time to breathe. Rather than by the end of January, I must drop two dress sizes. Yes, and it is, just becomes unrealistic. Yeah. And then so you're actually setting yourself up for more self-sabotage. And feeds that cycle of, oh, I failed. I'm not worthy of this, Which, of course, is the precursor. So yeah. again, it all comes back down to, and again, it, it may sound esoteric, poetic but for me i love turning on the internal expression of male and female expressions of love 
right? And what does that mean? So like I said, if you imagine you had your own baby or you could see somebody's baby, to me, it pulls forth the expression of the quintessential mothering, unconditional love and acceptance. A mother's energy is embracing, it's nurturing, it's all holding. When the baby's crying or it breaks something, the mother's inclination is, don't worry, it's okay. So to bring that quality and then the the father, the paternal energy is love, but with a little bit of sort of that logical commitment and something that is we're going to work towards. It's an analytical side. And I think what we tend to do is we tend to come straight in from the masculine. Like, well, what should I do? What is the strategy? And sometimes I feel, beyond sometimes, every time I feel what people need first is that feminine, it's okay. It's okay where you're at. That currently you're two, five, 300 pounds, it's okay. I get that you're discomforted. I get that you feel terrible, but it's okay. You are where you are. Now the person feels seen. They feel held. There's a degree of self-acceptance. Now, what would you like to do as a choice, not as a reaction? Because if we're coming from a reactive state of mind too, we're denying ourselves. We're saying, I'm not something and I need to fix myself. That is also going to be a losing proposition versus I'm going to choose to, to take care of myself. And over a very, very realistic time frame, this is now the practical side, the masculine, I'm going to lose, I'm going to commit to what are the choices I have to make to lose one to two pounds a week. That may seem completely nominal relative to somebody's current condition, but check back with me in a year yeah. and see where I'm at. And, and I forgot who said it, but it was like Ernest Hemingway or somebody, they said, you know, look... The time is going to pass anyway, like relative, you know, the world is going to keep moving. So you might as well do something that is good for yourself, yeah. right? I mean, just a couple of observations there, Peter. Um, I'm conscious that we're almost at the end of the time we okay. have. And we still haven't covered a load of the things that I wanted to see, which means we're going to have to have Podcast a part three, three. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm back in LA in a few months. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to touch on relationships and kids. Yeah. And I think we have done a little bit, to be fair. I think yeah, we have yeah. done. And what's interesting, you mentioned before, you know, how what would your relationship be like with your kids? You know, um, regarding patience, you would be patient with them. It's it's really interesting that for me, as I've become more compassionate to myself, yes, and more patient with myself, yeah, I've become more patient with my kids. Yes. Of course. And that sort of applies to relationships as well. And you know, we didn't really, we didn't go in deep into relationships. No. We sort of touched on some of them. Yeah. Um, I wonder briefly, only because we're out of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for people, and again, this is something we can go in deep next time. Yeah, you know? love to. I'm sure there will be a next time, I have no doubts. Yeah. Um, but are there some sort of practical tips that people can think about in their relationships? Yeah, one word, listen. Listen. It's, it's, it's so misunderstood when people talk about communicating. What does is, what is usually come to mind when you say, you know, communicate? What do you normally think of when you hear that word? Like if I'm communicating. How do I? Like when, what is the connotation? If I'm saying, oh, you know, they're a good communicator. What does that normally imply? It normally implies they're good at explaining something to someone else. Correct. So I want to flip that around. I want to say the greatest communicators are the greatest listeners. Two ears, one mouth, right? Yeah. So in relationships, if this is like sort of we're down to the last couple of minutes and there's an ultimate takeaway, is l- work on listening. There's no greater gift you can give a human being than to truly get their reality over there. We l- most people tend to react. They're not listening. So even if someone comes up and calls me an idiot, 
which fortunately they don't. But if from my perspective, I really got that's how they viewed me. And I was listening. There's no reaction on my end. There's actually just curiosity because that's not how I view myself. So I'm kind of curious, where did you get that opinion of me? So now I get into their reality versus retaliating and say, well, screw you, you're an idiot, which is how most people relate. It's a very basic form of language. But it's because people don't listen, they react. And again, I'm going to reiterate it. There's no greater gift you can get than to truly understand, fully, fully get somebody's view of life. They're just expressing how things look through their eyes. And what most people do is they don't get their reality. They listen from how does their view affect me? That's how most people are listening. What is their words and what are their actions? What are the implications to me? Yeah. Which is the survival mindset. That is not a relationship. Really get this. That is not a relationship with anyone else. That is a relationship with my view of my own existence, which is why most people aren't in a relationship because they're not with the other person. They're with the other person. And how does that person threaten my view of life? Yeah. That, that's why most people are lonely, why most people's relationships aren't passionate and fulfilling and joyous because they don't understand that a relationship has got nothing to do with my view of survival and how that person upsets me or brings me joy or they have to behave in a certain way for me to feel okay. It's rather, I'm fascinated to get to know your view of life. Yeah. And that is that would change this whole world and the way that people relate to each other like you wouldn't believe. Lisa, I normally ask people to finish off with some practical tips, but I think you've already done that. I think you've given <laughs> plenty of practical tips. There's a lot of wisdom in what you say. I have no doubt that people will resonate with this episode just as much. Yeah, uh, I didn't share as much of my own story in this one, um, but maybe we can do that next time. Yeah, um, we'll, look at, we'll look at your relationship. We'll look at my relationship, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then I will finish off with a final question. I want yeah. to give something for your own life. Is there something you do? on a daily basis Mm -hmm. to help keep you on an even keel, to help keep you in control of your mind and your body and your heart? Is there something you do that maybe people can learn from and think, hey, that's something I might want to bring into my life? I mean, practically, there's many things, but I would say they all stem back to the same perspective that I hope people are getting from this, which is self-love and care. You know, whether it's you look at it as a tragedy that my parents died when I was very young, or you look at it as an opportunity for me to have to step up and take care of myself. And perhaps that was the precursor for me to initially be in a real heightened state of survival because there was no one else there to take care of me. Or that was maybe what was the the set me up, quote unquote, for success of turning self-preservation into self-love and acceptance and so all of if you were to follow me around for example and sometimes people want to know the things to do right like so i get up early and i work out and i go and and infrared sauna i do cold plunging all these things that now become very on vogue in the biohacking world and i eat good food and you know i do a hyperbaric chamber from time to time. Like these are hey, things that I do. you live in California, right? Exactly. You've got to do these things out here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so these are the things you might see. 
But what I want people to understand is what is the underlying energy? What is the why or the how am I doing it? Because I also know a lot of people who will be at the local gym every morning at six o'clock in the morning. And it looks like what they're doing is good for them. But the underlying currents that drives them is really an addiction to their feeling of inadequacy that they're trying to compensate yeah. for by looking a certain way. So I don't want people to get too caught up in the actions and the behaviors and really look at what is the underlying essence of where I'm coming from. Are you making choices for yourself that are founded in self-love and appreciation, or are they founded in self-sort of survival and preservation? And that is a subtle but very important distinction. It takes a bit of time to sit quietly and go, why am I doing what I'm doing? So for me, for sure, and look, I'm not perfect. I'm still human. I'm going to have days where I feel lousy and I feel tired and I'm like, what's the point? The difference is for me, I don't wallow there. I bring love and acceptance and I accept my humanity. It's okay to have a day where you don't feel like Superman. And maybe what that day requires is an early to bed, you know, maybe a nap, maybe a long bath, maybe take a walk or a hike in nature and get, maybe talk to a friend and say, God, I'm just feeling lousy today. So all of the things that we spoke to, it's embrace our humanity, warts and all, and um, have more patience, have more compassion for yourself and your fellow man and woman, and realize that, you know, without sounding... uh, tried that we're all doing the best we can within the limits of awareness that we currently have yeah it's not so much the what you're doing it's the why you're doing it isn't yeah. it and um yeah. please so much wisdom again uh i think many people are going to really really take on board what you say it's going to help them shift their perspective on their own life yeah. people always want to know more how can people stay in touch with you what is it how you know how can they find out more about you and what you're doing is there yeah. somewhere i can direct people uh, well, firstly, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you again, my friend. And I hope if, you know, if there's one energy people do feel in the way I speak, it is love and care, right? I'm doing this because you're not paying me money. Of course, to some degree, it like brings awareness to my work. So people might argue, oh, well, he's doing this for promotion. But really, I'm doing this just because I care. And if people could just take a little snippet of that energy for themselves, then I feel I've done my job today. Um, in terms of reaching me, uh, Instagram, uh, Peter Crone Official is always yeah. great. We're now even on Facebook. We've uh, incorporated <laughs> that, Peter Crone, the Mind Architect. And then my website, uh, petercrone.com. So um, I'm always so flattered and humbled by the amount of people that reach out with kind words for what they might have gotten from today. And yeah. so I love hearing from people if people want to reach out. Um, because, you know, we're all doing the best we can. And I feel blessed that I have a perspective that seems to really inspire people to yeah. look at life through a different set of eyes. And and I, I don't take that for granted. And I feel, you know, an, an honor and responsibility to be able to share that with people so that they today might find greater freedom and peace in their life. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time. And I look Thanks, forward mate. to part three. A, yes. very, <laughs> a, a point very soon in the future. <laughs> we got our own like ongoing series. <laughs> we do. Yeah. We'll ask more questions and we'll keep coming. All right, Rangan. Thanks, bud. Take it easy, man. Thank you. So there we have it, the end of another Feel Better, Live More season. For me, there were some really quite deep and profound insights from Peter in that conversation. And I really love the idea of not getting too caught up with our actions and behaviors, but instead to look behind them and try to identify the underlying emotions. What did you think? 
Did the conversation strike a chord with you? Do you feel it's helped you gain a deeper understanding of what is going on in your life? As always, please do let Peter and I know your thoughts on social media. Peter is most active on Instagram at Peter Crone Official, and I would highly encourage you to find him there. Give him a follow. You can also check out the online courses that he offers on his website, petercrone.com. The show notes page for this episode is drchastgy.com forward slash 121, and it will have all the links to his channels, his website, and some interesting articles about his work. Now, Many of you I know will miss the weekly conversations over the summer. Please remember that there are a huge number of previous episodes to listen to, and I really would encourage you to visit the back catalogue and listen or even re-listen to some of the wisdom that has been shared. Over the past two years, this podcast has grown to becoming one of the most listened to health podcasts in the entire UK and Europe. And as the reach grows, so does my ability to get hold of more and more amazing guests, such as the likes of Esther Perel, Gabor Mate, and Wim Hof. So if you feel you get value from my podcasts, I have a heartfelt request to make of you. Over the summer, I would love you to tell five different people about the Feel Better Live More podcast. Perhaps you can think about a specific relevant episode for each of those five people. It would be such a lovely thing to do and a thoughtful act of kindness to choose a specific episode that someone close to you might benefit from. It might be Esther Perel on relationships or Patrick McKeown on how breathing through your nose can improve the quality of your life or even this current one with Peter Crone. If each of you do that to five different people, the reach of this podcast over the summer will grow tremendously and that will allow me to bring you more and more amazing guests in the next season. Please also do spare 30 seconds to give the show a review on whichever platform you listen to podcasts on like Apple Podcasts and of course don't forget all of the episodes are available on YouTube and in fact if you think you're going to get withdrawal over the summer head to my YouTube channel and watch the Feel Better Live More short clips playlist and you'll probably see bite-sized five to ten minute highlights of some of your favorite conversations. Lastly, don't forget my latest book Feel Better in Five is coming out in America and Canada on September the 1st 2020 with a brand new yellow cover. This book has had a huge impact in the UK since it came out. So if you live in the US or Canada, you can jump onto Amazon right now to pre-order your very own copy. If you want to support the sponsors of the podcast, but cannot remember all the URLs, you can now go to drchatterjee.com forward slash sponsors, and you will see the full list and all the special offers in one place from brands like Vivo Barefoot to Athletic Greens. That is it from me. A big thank you to my amazing wife, Vedata Chatterjee, for producing this week's podcast and to Richard Hughes for audio engineering. I really do appreciate every single one of you who tunes in on a weekly basis to listen to the show and share it with your friends and family. Have a wonderful summer. Make sure that you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back at the start of September with a new season of authentic conversations that really matter. Remember, you are the architect of your own health. 
making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time. Thank you.